0: So uh, I know everybody's time is precious and, uh, and I think we should get started. Good afternoon, everyone. It is officially afternoon now. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Leslie Stein. I'm director of the Government Law Center at Albany Law School. And I would like to welcome all of you to the second program of the 2022 Warren M. Anderson series. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Anderson series and today we have a distinguished panel of speakers on the important topic of revitalizing the new york state law revision commission as you will learn the work of the commission has been hindered by a lack of funding for the past several years the government law center believes that revitalization of the commission is vital to the ongoing improvement of new york's laws and we hope to be able to support the commission's efforts to resume its work in earnest and to continue our association with and assistance to the Commission with legal research, analysis, and drafting by Albany Law School students and faculty members in the years to come. Uh, A brief uh, commercial interruption, and that is, is that all of you should um, have received uh, information about getting CLE credit. And uh, just to let you know, we will announce the, uh, the code word during today's program. Uh, I will now briefly introduce our panelists today in order of their appearance. I don't wanna take up too much of the minimal time available to us with lengthy introductions, but I do encourage you to review their impressive bios online. Our first presenter will be Michael J. Hutter, a commissioner of the New York State Law Revision Commission and a professor of law at Albany Law School. Professor Hutter will start us off by providing some background regarding the history, purpose, and operation of the commission. After we hear from Professor Hutter, we will hear from Laura Tharney, who is executive director of the New Jersey Law Revision Commission. Ms. Tharney will speak about some of the salient aspects
1: of New the New Jersey's commission CLE I do. and of v-
0: various notable projects in which it has engaged. And I just want to remind everyone to please stay on mute unless you're speaking. Thank you. Um, Following Ms. Larney's remarks, Peter Kiernan, chair of the New York State Law Revision Commission, will address the subject of why the Commission performs a valuable service to our state government and to New York's citizens and should continue to operate. He will describe a few of the studies undertaken by the Commission in the past and will share some thoughts about its future. We hope to have some time for a few questions and answers after each presentation, however, Uh, The panelists all have agreed to remain for a few minutes at the conclusion of the program to answer further questions from the audience. All questions should be entered in the zoom chat and will be presented by the uh, Government Law Center Deputy Director Patrick Woods. Finally, before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsors. Our series sponsors the contribution of family members in memory of Sharon P. O'Connor, Albany Law School class of 1979, as well as Whiteman, Osterman, and Hannah, and our program sponsor, Greenberg Traurig. In addition, I would like to recognize the contributions of Professor Rosemary Bailey, former executive director of the New York Law Revision Commission, and numerous other individuals who assisted in the planning of this program and the preparation of the materials you should have received electronically. Without further ado, I now give you Professor Hutter.
2: Thank you, Judge. Good afternoon. I've been tasked, and I hate to use that word. It sounds like it's onerous. It's not. It's it's a real pleasure. I've been tasked to talk about uh, briefly the organization of the commission, its operations, and even getting back to its history, but most importantly, its purpose. Now, as to history, I'll simply refer you to the materials in, that you have. We go back now to start our, we trace our lineage back to Chief Judge Cardozo. And he, when he's with the court, he thought it'd be a great idea to have this Ministry of Justice, which then morphed into, in 1934, the New York Law Revision Commission. and. In that respect, the whole idea, and this is what Judge Cardozo really wanted in the Commission of Legislative Intent, was three key words, systematic law reform, identify a problem, and then tackle it. And whether that problem now is archaic laws or simply the absence of laws as society is evolving We have new situations, we have no laws to tackle it. This is what the commission is designed to do, intended to do. And the census will dig into it and we'll dig into it in a non-partisan manner. And I think that's key. And I'll talk about one study as to illustrate that, especially with what's going on now with the legislature with criminal law reform. But the whole idea now is to give input into problems give us give give a good studied history of the problem background of the problem alternatives how to tackle it and submit that report to the legislature along with p- possible bills now we since 34 we've had dozens literally dozens of recommendations the vast majority which have been enacted by the legislature in whole Others now were then tweaked by the legislature. And again, tweaked with oversight from the commission. So it's been a great partnership since 1934. And as Peter will talk with you, it's even continuing in recent years when the the money dried up, when we were basically defunded uh, by the administration. So what then, how does this work, the operations? What triggers a commission study? It will be triggered by, uh, by first of all, by outsiders. And when I say outsiders, I mean the governor, the legislator, individually or as a body, judges, courts. And in that respect, the Court of Appeals has been one of the major sources of studies, initiative by reason of their decisions which they say this really needs further study by a court, not by the court, but by the commission. And then of course, attorneys and individuals. But we also then will review things by our own study. We'll look at the advance sheets. We'll talk with legislators. We've had great relationships with the legislature because the ex officio members, the chair of assembly codes, Judiciary, Senate codes and judiciary have been a large part of the commission. And we've had great relationships with their counsels through the years. So we're always keeping abreast of what's going on ourselves. So we get a, we get a, a problem. What do we do with it? Staff will study it. And going back now to the 70s when I was there, we had a top-notch staff, three attorneys, that were now hired right out of law school based upon their law school record to do the research. And it was that time deemed to be the equivalent of a great clerkship. And we had then the five commissioners and the five commissioners when I was on, when I was executive director, Judge McLaughlin, at that point, the Dean of Albany Law School, Willis Reese, distinguished professor from Columbia, Al Rosenthal, former legislative leader in the assembly, Carolyn Gentile, a distinguished labor lawyer. So the commission has always had some top-notch commissioners on top of a top-notch staff. We will then look at that input, that request, write up a report and present it to the commission. And the commission used to meet monthly, a regularly monthly with a, what I would call a briefing book, which has been essentially a binder with hundreds of pages with all the various thoughts. So what do we do then? Let me use as an example. And again, the the example I picked is one maybe grabbed from the headline, so to speak. 45 years ago, there was a major problem in the criminal justice system in New York City where a police officer shot a young, not a child, but a teenager, looked like cold blood. He was indicted He was acquitted, not guilty by reason of insanity. And then under the laws back then, he was shipped away to an institution to be checked and then released a year later. The public outcry was incredible, especially when the psychiatric testimony from the state's experts was that this man's a danger to society. You can't just release him now. So what happened? Governor Carey asked the commission, to do a study of the insanity defense. He wanted now some major input into it. And what's interesting is that Judah Gribbets at that time was his counsel. Judah was a, was a student of criminal law in many respects and he harked back now to the McNaughton Rule. The McNaughton Rule, which was followed in New York up until about 65, was an English rule. Now, where did that English rule come from? The House of Lords had a problem. One of their members had been shot in cold blood. The defendant was acquitted. What should we do? They didn't know what the hell to do. So they sent it to the court. And the court now drafted the McNaughton rule with little input from outsiders and anything. But yet, New York, as well as most of the, the states, follow that rule until it was jettisoned. Now, so the commission gets this report this problem, we then, and again, this is the advantage of the commission. We can use our own expertise, but then we have the ability to select consultants. And by this dint of our reputation, consultants are willing to serve pro bono. So the commission then appointed at that point, two judges who were very well versed in criminal law, Peter McQuillan and Mike Juveler to be our consultants on this. I designated an attorney, Arne Youngerman, a recent graduate from Cornell Law School to be the staff attorney to work with them. We realized that we're gonna need some more input. We're gonna need a broader perspective. So what we did then is we recruited, we recruited now a study group. And the study group was chaired by Professor Herb Wexler, the the basically the Dean of Modern Penal Law the ALI founder, the ALI creator of the model penal code. We then also appointed to this commission two eminent psychiatrists who had now studied the insanity, had even testified at court. We then put on John Van Voorhis, who had been retired from the court of appeals. And then we put in three distinguished attorneys in private practice who had a history, Bill Danino, former counsel, assistant counsel to the governor, a former ADA. Now he's still serving the state. He was chief judge Fiore's choice to be the co-chair of the evidence review committee. Bruce Ennis from the ACLU, a very vocal voice for that group. We, he was made a part and then John Keenan, who we now know of course as the f- retired federal judge. And back then he just stepped down as the drug prosecutor. So we now have this eminent commission. So what did we do then? The staff then started to prepare studies. We would send them out monthly to the commissioners. This had been reviewed by our outside group. They were meeting regularly. Mr. Youngerman was meeting regularly over the course of a year after numerous drafts and then some public hearings. We then came up with the Insanity Reform Bill, and what this did is it tweaked the insanity defense, and then set up the most important part was what to do about acquittals, and we call them not guilty by not not guilty by reason of insanity. We now gave it a different name, not responsible by reason of mental disease or defect, and then we set forth to take care of the Torrancey situation. A very careful institutionalization plan for people now who've been acquitted. Now, at that point, again, we send it to the legislature and the legislature adopted in large part what we did. But what's interesting is that the legislature, and again, they can tweak, and they did tweak it three years later. What the commission had done is, we retain the insanity defense as an affirmative defense, but the prosecution had the burden of disproving it on their direct case. That was what we did. Now, afterwards, we, the legislature thought that, no, it's probably better that this be in full affirmative defense and let the defendant have the burden. And so they amended it five years later. But my whole point is now, when what we have is, and it's been tweaked a little bit since then, but everyone now pretty much agrees that what the commission came up with was a very good solution to a real ongoing problem to tighten up, prevent now people from staging phony claims of insanity to treating people who really are insane, so to speak, and really are a danger to society. And again, you can see that the similarities now to what's going on in the legislature right now. But what's interesting here is that Governor Carey saw that the best way of tackling this is because the legislature, again, the partisanship perhaps, but in conjunction now with the legislative leaders, Stanley Fink in the in the assembly and Warren Anderson in the Senate said, let's get it to the commission. So that's just an example of what we can do. and. Otherwise, if we talk about, Peter will talk about recent one. The other one I'll add is when John Feerick came on the commission, John Feerrick, as you know, was the architect of the 26th Amendment for presidential succession. He got the commission to look at now with vast studies, gubernatorial succession, including what happens now when the lieutenant governor becomes governor because the governor steps down and there's no provision out for replacement. And of course we know that's how Richard Ravage became a uh, Lieutenant Governor. He was appointed by David Patterson.
0: I think, now, I think Professor Hunter, we could have a whole uh, program just on that. Yes, <laughs> and, so and I, I'll leave it
2: at that. I'll leave have, it at that and I'll, I'll pass the torch now to our next speaker.
0: Thank you, thank you so much. Peter? Where did he go?
3: Did we lose him? Oh dear. Peter is on mute, I believe. And no. are we jumping to Peter or are we jumping to I'm sorry. To no,
0: uh, Laura, my apologies. <laughs> no,
3: you, you are up now. Thank you. Okay. Any order is certainly fine with me, but thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I wanted to start by expressing my thanks for the opportunity to be here today and to participate in this important discussion. I've been very fortunate to have worked with the New Jersey Law Revision Commission for 20 years now, and I've been the executive director of the commission for nearly 10 of those years. In the interest of transparency, I will start by saying that I am not and going to pretend that I'm an objective voice regarding the value of law revision commissions. My experience is limited to my work with the New Jersey Law Revision Commission, but based on that work over the years now, I really believe in the value of the New Jersey Law Revision Commission and in law revision commissions more broadly. I've seen that the Commission in New Jersey can play a very useful role in monitoring and maintaining the body of statutory law, and I don't for a moment assume that that's unique to New Jersey context, just to take the view from 30,000 feet for a moment, New Jersey has two-year legislative sessions. In recent years, in each legislative session, more than 10,000 bills were introduced, and there are many, many, obviously, competing demands on the time of legislators and legislative staffers. New Jersey's Office of Legislative Services is responsible, among other things, for bill drafting. When I last looked at the numbers, there are something like 350 people who work for the OLS. The New Jersey Law Revision Commission has four employees. Certainly we are no competition, but I strongly believe that there's a role for us to play in working collaboratively with the competent, capable, knowledgeable people who are drafting in OLS. When I think about the legislature, I conceive of it as forward-looking. Legislators are reasonably focused on solving problems that come to their attention, whether from constituents or other sources. I do not see that they have the time to engage in a review of the existing body of statutory law in a given state and to look for things like inconsistencies and conflicts, laws that have become outdated with the passage of time or are no longer serving the purpose for which they were enacted. Also, with so many bills introduced, It just doesn't seem realistic to expect that for each bill that's introduced, there is going to be an exhaustive research project done, a search of the history of the current law or a 50 state survey, for example. In addition, at least in New Jersey, there is no mechanism by which the opinions of the courts that discuss New Jersey statutes are brought to the attention of the legislature. So when you see language in cases in which the court says something like, And if the legislature disagrees with our interpretation of statute X, they are of course free to, I find myself thinking, well, perhaps if someone tells them about that. One last point on this is that the work of OLS in New Jersey in drafting bills for legislators is done in confidence. This is by statute. So unless the legislature authorizes OLS to do so, its staff members do not disclose the nature of the content of their work on the bills. So the process of drafting bills does not routinely involve outreach to those who are impacted or who will be impacted by a change in the law now just as michael touched on earlier there have been historic calls for law revision commissions one of the earliest that i saw when i was doing some research on this some years ago was in the 1870s and later significantly to address at least in part the challenges associated with what can be the siloed nature of statutes on one hand and case law on the other, and the interplay between those two, there was the 1921 article by Benjamin Cardozo calling for the creation of an entity to deal with this issue. Almost every state, as far as I know, has an entity that's charged with the responsibility for revising or reforming its statutes. When last I looked at this, Oklahoma was the apparent exception several years ago. For this information, I relied, and I have to mention that I relied heavily on the excellent work done by the National Conference of State Legislatures who researched this issue and prepared a state-by-state summary. Now the operations and the functions of these various organizations vary by state. Some of them focus more on the structural organization and management of the statutes. Others play a role in modifying the substance of the statutes. Their focus includes things like bill drafting and research, compilation, legislative services, et cetera. A limited number of states have a law revision commission that was created to act with some degree of independence and to engage with the legislature. There were fewer than 10 when last I looked. Not all of these are staffed right now. Not all of them operate in the same way. Their budgets vary. One thing they do seem to have in common is that their their recommendations are not self-executing. Some legislative action is required before a recommendation has any legal force or effect. Turning now to just a quick overview of the work of the New Jersey Law revision Commission. Commission projects vary in size. There are some recommendations that we have made and will be making that recommend a change to literally a single word or a single subsection of a statute. Some a recommendation that we made that was enacted at the end of 2019 concerned the sexual assault, assault statute in New Jersey and the removal of the reference force. Other uh, projects of this kind included a project that we still have not found anyone interested in enacting this in, in a sub- submitting it as a bill. But there was, there was an erroneous provision in New Jersey statute that allows the commissioner of the Department of Community Affairs to impose a $100,000 fine. It's supposed to be a $100 fine. That was a typo. So that we recommended that change. Other work that we do proposed a revisit a revision of an entire title or an entire subject matter area. Title 39 pertaining to motor vehicles was one of those. The UCC articles are other examples. Uh, still other projects propose revisions to more than one title. Landlord-tenant law, for example, cuts across several titles. Prejorative terms. We had a couple of projects that we worked on years ago that were enacted, one in 2013, one in 2017, recommending the removal of pejorative terms wherever they appeared throughout New Jersey's body of general and permanent statutes. Also, there is some ongoing work that we're doing right now, a project proposing the removal of the term inmate from New Jersey statutes. And this was actually inspired, the project, by a change in New York law. And we're about at the midpoint of our work on that project at this time. The project's—the duration of the project also varies considerably by project. Some last for one or two months, others for one or two years or more. Since it began its work, the commission has released something like 220 reports and submitted them to the legislature. Of those, I believe our number is 77 of them have been enacted into law by way of 58 separate bills. And one report actually resulted not in a change to New Jersey statutes, but in a change to New Jersey's rules of court. The, by way of a, just a quick historical glimpse, New Jersey established the first Law Revision Commission in the US in 1925. Now, as you know, New York wins because New York has had the, it has the oldest Law Revision Commission that has been in continuous operation since it was created. In New Jersey, the law rev- first Law Revision Commission produced the revised statutes of 1937, but then it ceased operation in 1939. After that point, the function of the commission were transferred to several successor agencies, but there was no entity that was responsible for continuous review and revision until 1985. That's when the current commission was created. The legislature made a determination that it was worthwhile and appropriate to have an entity that was going to engage in a general revision and continuous review of the statutes of the state. The current commission was created in 85. The statute was effective in 86, and the commission began working in 87. Now, in New Jersey, the Law Revision Commission is an independent commission, but it's a part of the legislative branch of our state government. And the statutes that created us lay out the commission's mandate direct that we are to promote and encourage the clarification and simplification of the law. It's better adaptation to present social needs and to secure the better administration of justice and carry on scholarly legal research and work. And it lays out a couple of things that we are supposed to do in order to do that. The statute that created the commission in New Jersey identifies the required commission composition. We have nine commissioners in New Jersey. And again, as with New York, The New Jersey Commission was designed and intended to be apolitical and nonpartisan. So the members of the commission include four practicing attorneys, two of whom are appointed by the president of the Senate here, not more than one of which can be from the same political party, and two are appointed by the speaker of the assembly with the same qualifier. The chairs of the Senate and assembly judiciary committees are ex officio Mm -hmm. members of our commission, And the deans of New Jersey's three law school campuses are also ex-officio members of the commission. In New Jersey, the commission meets once each month with the exception of August. Our meetings are open to the public, the documents that are considered at each meeting are provided in advance to our commissioners and to members of the public who express an interest in receiving them or they are also accessible on our website And we have been very fortunate over the years that I have been there to have commissioners with experience and expertise in a variety of areas of the law, and they are very active. They review in detail all of the materials sent to them each month. They provide detailed, comprehensive comments, and they also request additional research if they think it's warranted. In any given month, they may ask for additional information, recommend additional research, or collectively authorize work in an area or the release of a project for either comment or as a final report recommending a change to the legislature. Our monthly meetings are generally the only time that we have all of our commissioners together at one time to discuss the commission's work. And in addition to the commissioners, New Jersey is supported by a small commission staff. The commission staff works year round, offices staffed Monday through Friday. We have a blend of full and part-time staff. The composition of the commission staff changes periodically based on our needs and budgetary constraints. Right now we have three full-time attorneys and one part-time executive assistant. And in recent years, in order to continue doing the work that we do and the amount of work that we're trying to do, we've really worked to find ways to increase our engagement with law school communities. So we work with students who assist us now as paid clerks or for credit externs, pro bono credit as well. Some years ago we created a legislative fellowship position that was modeled on judicial clerkships and we basically it was a one-year position that was filled by a recent law school graduate. We've also worked over the years to expand and increase our outreach on projects. Our process and our engagement with commenters sounds as though it is less formal than the process that has taken place in New York. We don't have the opportunity or the ability to Appoint people to participate in projects. So we do project based outreach that is tailored specifically for each project and try to identify people who would be willing and able to share their expertise and experience with us to inform our drafting. The primary sources of the work that we do in the projects are if I had to break it down and focus on the top three, I would say the work of the Uniform Law Commission, case law. We created term searches that run automatically and alert us to cases in which a court finds a statute or some part of thereof unconstitutional or determines that it is federally preempted or calls an issue to the attention of the legislature or discusses legislative intent. Also, projects are recommended about, in some years, about a third of our projects are recommended by members of the public. This includes staff and commissioners as well as members of the legal community and individuals who are not members of the legal community, but who have had an experience or some expertise with an area of the statute and are aware of the fact or believe that there are issues or problems with that statute. The commission's role also varies. There are some projects and most commonly, we will institute and complete a project by the commission and you know, including, of course, our usual outreach that's done to try to, to get as much input as possible. There are other times, however, when projects are, they originate with other sources, maybe the State Bar Association, maybe another entity, and the commission is asked to participate in a particular aspect of the project. Um, the commission may also play a very limited role. There are times, for example, when a legislator or a legislative staff member or, or an OLS staffer may request assistance on in a single area or on a single issue. And they want, for example, a 50 state survey or to engage in other kinds of limited research and then provide preliminary findings with a quick turnaround time. So really there's a fairly broad scope of project types, project models and different kinds of project areas. If we look at the New Jersey reports that have been enacted since 2012, In the last 10 years we've had 22 projects that are enacted. There is a chart in materials that shows the number of projects that were in various states of completion in recent years and you and you will see also in the materials that they cover a wide variety of areas of the law. One question we are frequently asked is how does the commission choose the projects on which to work? We've talked about the sources of potential projects and there are a series of considerations that we use to assess potential projects based on their source. We are also asked if there are limits to the work that we do or the kinds of projects that we do and the answer to that is yes. Usually we do not work in areas of the law in which the legislature has very recently worked or is currently working. We view part of our mission as bringing to the attention of the legislature, things that legislators are not already focusing on. In practical terms, given the size and the resources of the commission and the size and the resources of the staff available to the legislature, there does not seem to be a benefit to duplicating or appearing to compete with the work that's being done by the legislature already. Also, and this is a tricky one, we say and we mean that we do not work on policy. And I say this is a tricky one because anyone who does statutory drafting can say with a straight face that even a question about whether and where to place a comma can be a policy decision. And those of us who've been saying for years that this can be a policy decision took particular note of the, what was it, the oakhurst Dairy case out of Maine in 2018, which involved an overtime dispute that resulted in the payment of something like $5 million to truck drivers and hinged on the presence or absence of the Oxford comma. Another thing that we don't do is we tend not to make recommendations that would have a fiscal impact on the state or require the expenditure of funds. Now, just to to double back to policy and to clarify, the NJLRC has a process, obviously, that that I've just been sharing with you that involves research and outreach. And we use this process to provide guidance and support for any recommendation that would would be made by the commission. There are instances, however, in which we can do all of the things that we do, all of the research and all of the outreach and all of the, the effort to gather information to support any recommendation we might make. And then we find that there really isn't, there isn't something that weighs more heavily on one side of an issue than the other. So all of the work that we've done does not lead us to clear support for a particular recommendation. In that case, those are the kinds of things that we describe as policy determinations that are appropriate for legislative action in the first instance. We do, however, sometimes, even though we do not make a recommendation in those cases, we do, however, occasionally release a report that we prepare to bring an issue to the attention of the legislature so that it can work in the area if it chooses to do so. And then with regard to the kinds of projects that the Commission works on, if you look just at the projects, the final reports that were released in 2021, you will see that they cover a range of issues and are examples of a range of the kinds of projects that the Commission works on and the kind of recommendations that we make or don't make. One of the projects dealt with county commissioner, and this was begun as a result of the, frankly, statewide and national move to re-examine statutory terms that were described as being rooted in systemic racism. And so we examined the use of the term workhouse in statutes, and we took a look at the idea also and the term freeholder, which appeared in many of the same statutes as the term workhouse. And in August of 2020, New Jersey's governor signed into law bills eliminating the titles freeholder and chosen freeholder from county government. And in response, a new definition for the term county commissioner was created, which was more commonly used elsewhere. I think New Jersey may have been one of the last states, if not the last, that still used freeholder and chosen freeholder. So with the substitution of the term and the creation of a new definition for county commissioner, the concern was that the term freehold, the terms freeholder and chosen freeholder still existed in more than a thousand statutes. So we went through the statutes, collected those instances and made a recommendation for the replacement of the term throughout. So that is one of the kinds of projects that we work on. Another ex- other examples you will see you can see in the materials are situations in which they're making a recommendation involved the kind of policy determination that I was just discussing organization of county committees was one of those examples where New Jersey's election statute contains requirements for county committee members that are based on gender that were supposed to be one male and one female member for example. This was challenged in recent years, and the plaintiffs sought to compel the county clerk to prepare ballots that called for the election of committee persons rather than a committee woman, a committee committee man. And so the challenge was that the court found that the statutes were constitutionally questionable, but since a modification of the law in this area required a policy determination, The Commission determined that that was best suited to the legislature and the final report that we released didn't make a recommendation about whether or how that statute should be changed, but it urged the legislature to consider the issue and take action as it deemed appropriate. And I don't know there are certainly a number of other projects, but I believe that I'm at the end of my time, so I will wrap it up there and happy to answer any questions at any time and more information can be found on our website and in the materials as well.
0: Perfect. And I really do um, recommend that you look at some of those reports and, and, and look at the website. They're, they're very thorough, very impressive, and, um, and very interesting. Um, and before we move to our last speaker, we, obviously, we're, we haven't had time for uh, questions after each um, speaker so far, but we will, we will have time for that at the end. Um, but before we move on to um, Mr. Kiernan, uh, I, uh, we need to tell you about the code word for your CLE credits. And today's code word is, I hope appropriately, spring. S-P-R-I-N-G, spring. Okay. Thank you again, Ms. Arney and uh, Mr. Kiernan.
1: Well, thank you, Judge, um, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, When Governor David Patterson asked me to serve as the chair of the Law Revision Commission, I was very proud because I knew uh, some of the commission's splendid history. For example, uh, the original executive director of the commission, John W. McDonald, who then became very long time chair of the commission was a professor of mine at law school. When I was appointed uh, counsel to the minority in the state Senate in the late 1970s, and I realize many of you probably weren't even born then, or if you were, you were still in short pants. But that was a time when the New York City was uh, insolvent and was enduring a quasi bankruptcy process that had been um, fashioned by the Congress. So the Kerry administration frequently was venturing into the legal unknown. And I know for a fact that it consulted with the commission. And so did I, when I was counsel to the governor. Um, So I am very grateful to Judge Stein and the Government Law Center for supporting the commission. Uh, She is, Judge Stein is entertaining, as she alluded, entertaining an alliance with the commission so that the commission can avail itself of law student research capacities, presumably for academic credit, and uh, serve as a uh, wonderful recruiting tool for people to join public service. And I'm also grateful to Janet DiFiore, Chief Judge DiFiore, who has been supportive of the condition. As Michael pointed out, the Court of Appeals frequently through the years has consulted with the commission and given it assignments. Um, The reasons that that Judge Cardozo cited in 1921 are as valid today as they were then. And when the, for example, when the commission was ultimately enacted in 19, the statute in 1934, the legislature had no staff. And one of the functions of the commission was to serve as legislative staff, particularly with research and reports. Now the legislature has lots of staff now, but there are significant committees of the legislature That have perhaps just a single professional employee, and some of those people are session employees. Each house has uh, senior staff, but they are generally overwhelmed by events and have to react to them. The executive branch is well staffed, but it is constantly dealing with crises, and actually, some of them are real. Um, So, I've I think it, uh, the legislature has a role to play as a sort of a quasi-staff. But my my main point is that legislation is a partisan endeavor. Now, currently in New York, the uh, party that controls both houses is the same party of the governor, but that has not always been the case. And each house, and even if it were to be, uh, and there's no assurance it'll continue, but even if it were to continue, the, uh, each house has its own prerogatives and priorities. And there always is tension uh, between the legislative branch and the executive branch. <clears throat> By its classic definition, politics is the struggle for power. Politics is partisan and there always is politics. Now the uh, aspiration, of course, the constant aspiration is for bipartisanship, but that occurs less, at least in my experience, that occurs less than one thinks. It's a function of leverage, the allocation of power, social and economic circumstances, leadership shifts, election year exigencies, pandemics, war, and other unpredictable factors. And when it does occur, it's usually in the form of a very narrow compromise. When I was counsel to the governor during the great recession, the legislature, the Senate, I should say, the Senate Democrats had achieved the majority by one vote, by one seat in reaction the Republicans as a block, voted against everything that the Democrats brought to the floor. Then in 2009, there was a coup and no one knew who was in charge. After the ensuing election, there was a breakaway independent democratic conference. In circumstances like that, compromise is very difficult to achieve. And partisanship reigns. <clears throat> Another thing, that I think is worth recognizing is that legislation is actually more like litigation. Hearings become contests and not very investigatory. I admire lobbyists, some of them are great professionals, but they are advocating for a single point of view. They do not consider wide compromise to be a measure of success. Now, by contrast, the Law Revision Commission is nonpartisan. It proceeds by consensus, often achieved by a series of roundtables where various stakeholders and advocates who otherwise may never talk to each other uh, discover common ground and discover and generate consensus. Everything the Law Revision Commission does is data driven. It's evidence-based. It does not advocate. It recommends. And it rarely takes on a project unless it is requested to do so or is compelled to do so. Another reason why I think commission uh, should be revitalized is that complex, comprehensive legislation is indigestible to the legislature. And that is when non-partisanship is most important. Examples of indigestion, legislative indigestion might be, might concern the uniform commercial code. New York state considers itself the financial and commercial, the most important financial and commercial jurisdiction in the United States and sometimes the world. But in 2014, New York State had the dubious distinction of being the only state in the country that had adopted vital amendments to the Uniform Commercial Code. But it enjoyed that dubious distinction for 10 years. For 10 years, it was the only state that had not adopted these amendments. The Law Revision Commission took up that task uh, and through a series of consultations with the bar associations, the major bar associations, law schools, academicians, other states, um, leaders in the financial and commercial community, we were able to reach consensus on the amendments and presented them to the legislature, which adopted. But the point is the legislature was incapable of dealing with the complexity of something like the Uniform Commercial Code. I don't think anyone's ever been elected based on their support of the Uniform Commercial Code. Another example that's somewhat more recent concerns the not-for-profit sector uh, and the not-for-profit corporation law. The not-for-profit sector of the New York state economy is vast it represents about 18% of all jobs in new york state and multiple multiple billions of dollars of economic activity the law revision commission was asked to address the not for profit law not for pro- not for profit corporation law we found that the law had not been amended since 1970 and before then 1896 The law was ponderous, unmanageable, sometimes incomprehensible, um, and clearly obsolete. We were able to undertake this task. It's been a multi-year effort. And it has resulted in three substantial amendments to the, uh, that were adopted by the legislature a another one which is pending and one that is waiting introduction i remember that there was a prominent lawyer who was oft quoted as saying that it is legal malpractice to form a not-for-profit corporation in new york under new york law all of that business was going to other states uh, most particularly delaware that That is changing now because the law is much more manageable. But there are many other examples of where the Law Revision Commission was able to take up a very comprehensive and controversial subject uh, and the legislature was not. Uh, The state uh, or the Commission, excuse me a second. The Commission was responsible for wholesale reform of the State Administrative uh, Law Procedure Act. Uh, It undertook a thorough revamping of alcohol, beveraging law, the ABC law, and the regulations of the State Liquor Authority and the administration of the law. Um, We had discovered that the ABC law had not been amended since 1934. <clears throat> that was less than a year after prohibition ended. Um, the powers of attorney uh, provisions were hopelessly biased in a mere vicious controversy among the legal profession. We undertook that and resolved it. Um, The mental hygiene law, particularly with respect to guardianships, is a mess. And we've been addressing that, that's a multi-year effort. Thanks to Rosemary Bailey, our executive director. And the only reason, uh, the only difference in her role is that she's no longer a paid executive director and kudos to her. Uh, Significantly, when the legislature passed the no-fault divorce law, one of the first states, I think maybe the first state, in the United States to do so, it had to deal with the question of temporary maintenance awards and then final maintenance awards. The legislature had adopted a formulaic approach, but asked the Law Revision Commission in the legislation itself, asked the Law Revision Commission to assess the effectiveness of that formulaic approach. That was a very difficult, lengthy effort which we literally had hundreds of conversations were able to have a all day long um, conference of stakeholders or round table of stakeholders in which a consensus was achieved. Uh, And we were able to recommend, and by the way, we did a, a survey of nine counties in the state and how their temporary maintenance awards were being uh, processed Uh, and to do that we had to get the services of a statistician, one of our members uh, contributed a golf game and a bottle of whiskey and we got a very competent um, statistician from Syracuse University that assembled our data and we adopted a hybrid approach where low income families that cannot afford Um, counsel uh, or situation where you have a battered spouse that didn't have the capacity to litigate a uh, temporary maintenance award, the formula applied there and applied very well. But the formula did not work for uh, families that had more substantial assets and particularly a melange of assets that did yield itself to a formulaic approach. And so guidelines were adopted. And the stakeholders that appeared at this roundtable included advocates for battered spouses, women's rights advocates, but judges and lawyers who were accustomed to representing uh, much wealthier clients. So uh, that was achieved. The uh, legislature amended the law. The exact way that we recommended that it be amended. Unfortunately, I, final... I
3: think we're going to. Ha-
0: oh, you have one more. Go ahead. Finish. Just th- yeah.
1: just had one more reason. I'll be fast. Um, I think a final reason um, for the uh, that the law revision commission should be extended is that uh, is that technology or the law always lags. Technology. When I was first uh, named as the chair, the Manhattan district attorney reached out to me and pointed out that the criminal surveillance laws are rooted in the 1980s. That's before there were cell phones, before there were personal computers, before there's ready access to GPS. Um, and that is, uh, he argued with me that that is crucial, that the law be May current. That remains an unfinished task. But one that is finished, though I'd like to mention just very briefly, is that, uh, and this was finished two years after all of our funding and support uh, was extinguished. And that uh, researchers from Mount Sinai Hospital came to me and said they had reason to believe that some of the most prevalent treatment for AIDS patients was actually causing them to contract liver cancer, often fatally so. But their research was impeded because of a law adopted in about 1990 designed to encourage uh, people to get tested. So it said it protected the confidentiality of AIDS patients. So years later, after the uh, uh, epidemic was basically under control, they could not, access any of the health records of AIDS patients or any of their, even their identities. And so the ability to devise remedies and actually save lives uh, was preventable. Again, we consulted widely with uh, hospitals and medical professionals, uh, and were able to fashion a remedy. But the significance of that episode is in the course of our conduct, uh, in, in research, we were told by um, hospital personnel and Department of Health personnel that there were many provisions of the health law that were simply ignored because of a lack of, uh, or because of they had been surpassed by technological advances. That's not a, I don't mean to make a pun, but that's not a healthy situation where you have medical professionals making decisions as to whether to adhere to what the law says or not, when they're not trained to make those kinds of decisions and they receive no guidance. Uh, During the pandemic, Governor Cuomo suspended the operation of more than 200 laws. Many of them were in the health law, the state health law. Now, whether whether those uh, suspensions of operations were wise or foolish, they've all lapsed and the health law needs a wholesale uh, revamping. Now, just as there are many uh, reasons why the Law Revision Commission should be continued, there are many ways to accomplish that. Uh, I was told by the Comptroller's Office that at the end of the calendar year 2021, the state had a $30 billion cash surplus the commission can be revived with about $200,000. All five of the commissioners, including myself, are holdovers, new commissioners could bring new energy, new contacts to, for uh, soliciting volunteer assistance. And most of all, I think we need a governor that views the commission as an asset and not a threat to his or her control. And we need a governor that appreciates the noble history of the commission. Of the Thank, commission. You. Thank, Thank you Thank you very
0: much. I think we'll, we'll have to leave it there and just uh, uh, leave it to some questions and answers if anybody has any.
4: Uh, I have two uh, question and answers in the chat. Um, and I also sent you one comment, Judge. Um, the first one is, uh, it relates to what uh, an attorney working at a state agency who is concerned that the legislature has done a lot of piecemeal legislating in a particular area uh, in a way that's creating disorganized or disjointed statutory structure. Um, if that's something that they that attorney could bring to the Law Revision Commission's attention, and if so, how?
1: Michael. Sure.
4: You're still on mute, Professor Hutter.
2: It sounds like the the attorney may be a little concerned about uh, retaliation, but certainly uh, that's something I think the commission would want to at least submit it to the commission. I obviously can't say what the commission would do about it, but I think that's something we would take a look at.
4: And the the second question uh, that I had is, what role, if any, would the Law Revision Commission play in a Constitutional Convention?
0: Great question.
1: Well, I think if we ever have a Constitutional Convention, um, the Law Revision Commission (coughs) would be a resource to the Convention. There are certain topics that uh, keep getting raised as subject that a convention, those who advocate a convention should address, have already been addressed by the commission in a, as I said, a nonpartisan manner. So it could play a fairly significant role.
2: Interesting along those lines, Patrick, uh, Dick Bartlett, uh, who had been a, a participated in the last constitutional convention, had commented to Bob Barker and I, Bob was a former executive director, that the commission could play a role at least in formulating uh, some position papers on some of the issues that would come before. Uh, Dick was a big supporter of the commission.
0: I have one other question that came to me and that is whether there are any interesting areas of law that the um, commission uh, is currently concerned about addressing. uh,
1: Well, we're still looking at the not-for-profit corporation law, which is a huge, Um, multi-article law, Um, for instance, how to treat um, um, foreign corporations, Um, but certainly the work is continuing there. I've already alluded to the uh, New York's health law, Uh, I alluded to uh, criminal surveillance laws, Which there's lots of advocacy to address. So those are just three items that would keep us busy for quite a while,
0: having having just um, come from the Court of Appeals. um, I I would suggest also another area that uh, has not been addressed in many, many years in a wholesale fashion, and that's our civil procedures and laws and rules, the CPLR, which um, is full of contradictions and, uh, and, and uh, uh, ambiguities. And, and you talked, uh, Mr. Kiernan, about New York being the commercial center and uh, just how, how difficult it, it can be to, um, to litigate in New York's courts uh, because of the current condition of our CPLR. So that, that's a big one to maybe put on the shelf.
1: Well, the problem always with the legislature is that you have short-term elected members uh, dealing with long-term problems. And that's a task, I think, that the the CPLR is something the legislature would probably avoid or want to avoid because no one also gets elected saying, I led the reform of the CPLR. So uh, I agree with you that 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 is necessary, and of course, that's an area where we could get plenty of volunteers. I believe to help, lots of litigators out there that are frustrated by the CPLR.
4: I've uh, I have another um, comment that I'm going to convert into a question, uh, which is, do you think that there should be a more formal mechanism for the Law Revision Commission to work with? The Uniform Law Commission, uh, and if so,
2: what could that look like?
1: Michael, you might be best to address that.
2: We've we've always had an informal relationship um, with them. Um, we will talk with them when a project would come in. Is the Uniform Law Revision looking at this? What's your timetable? Uh, We had some most recent discussions before Peter's time with the Uniform Trade Secret Act. New York now, surprisingly, is the only state in the country that has not enacted the Uniform Trade Secret Act. And the Uniform Act, people wanted to know why. And it's always been a puzzle to me um, about why that has not happened. But there's certainly a great resource and there should be coordination. But I don't know if it's necessary to have any sort of more Would be quote unquote formal.
0: Anybody else? Anything for uh, Ms. Tharney, who we appreciate giving us her uh, her input from our neighboring state of New Jersey.
4: I have one. I, I I noticed that one of the structural differences between the New York commission and the New Jersey commission is that the New Jersey commission's uh, appointed members all come from the legislature. Uh, are you still still there? Uh, yes. Okay. I am. Whereas the New York's commission has two effective, you know, ex officios who are connected to the legislature, and then multiple gubernatorial appointments. I'm wondering if the lack of a gubernatorial appointment or member of the new jersey commission who's ever uh, presented an obstacle to the commission's work being translated into uh, practice the changes in all
3: i do not know that's certainly an interesting consideration and we have as recently as the last legislative session had situations in which bills based on our work went through and were they went through both houses of the legislature but then were the subject of a veto by the governor so i don't know if having a more institutional connection to the governor's office would address that but the challenge of course is that since we are a legislative entity created by the legislature and as a part of the legislative branch I don't know in practical terms how that would work exactly. So the short answer is, I just don't know. Sorry about that, Patrick. No problem.
0: Okay, well, I think this has been very informative and and obviously there's work to be done and and we're going to continue to do that work. And uh, hopefully uh, by next year, this time we'll be back up and running. Have a great day, everyone. And thank you again for participating and again to all of our sponsors um, for making today's program uh,
3: uh, available. Thank you, everyone.